and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then our text, the next two verses, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. These the very words of God. Martin Luther, after his confrontation with the Catholic Church when he was condemned for his teaching, said, and I quoted this to you before, but I'll do it again, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Luther was saying, I stand on the Bible and also what we would call logical deductions and inductions from it and nothing else. Shortly after this confrontation, Luther went into hiding and there he did one of his Reformation acts, translated the Latin Bible into German so German people could read it. This Reformation Sunday, and I always do Reformation sermons, I chose to focus on the truth about the Bible that Luther rediscovered in a way, and that's just as important today. So, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We'll go right through the two verses. I'm retired now. I hear more sermons than I preach, and I really appreciate the pastors who go right through the Bible, explaining and applying, and I'll do the best I can with you this morning. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, we'll start with that word, all, and I'm going to be a bit pedantic here. I'll have an illustration for you when I'm done being pedantic and in-depth, but... Bear with me a minute. I wrote this down. I'll even read it, trying to be to the point. Bear with me. Don't get bored. But I want you to feel how many ways people have tried to deny all Scripture. Here we go. We must not think about the Bible, all I like, but not what I dislike. We must not think all my church approves, such as the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, like the Samaritan Pentateuch approves, 
or the Old Testament only like the Jews, or the New Testament only like some Christians. We must not think Bible minus. That happened already in the 100s with Marcy and the heretic. Such as all except Genesis 1 to 11, all except miracles, all except the supernatural about Christ, such as incarnation, and then getting to our times, all except so-called sexist God references, such as Father God instead of Mother God. Boy, am I glad I don't hear much of that these last few years. We must not think Bible minus what the Bible says about homosexuals. The latest I'm hearing is that the Bible's not against homosexuals, but the liberal theologians saying the Bible's against naughty homosexuals. Get a feel for all the way people try to take the Bible minus. And we must not think only some scriptures, such as a scripture within the scripture, or center or core scripture, such as only what Christ said, only the Sermon on the Mount, only the Golden Rule, only the practical sections of scripture, or only some kernel on the cob within husks. Next, we must not think all plus. That already started in the 100s with Montanus and his lady tongue speakers. We must not think scripture plus the holy books of other religions, scripture plus Tradition, which was the big thing in Reformation times, including Pope speaking ex cathedra, which put tradition above the Bible. We must not think Bible plus new revelations. You always got these people who are trying to add to the Bible. We must be cautious with Bible plus footnotes. Footnotes are okay, but not inspired Bible. We must not think Bible authors as witnesses to Revelation. That was Karl Barth. We must not think Bible plus reason, as in those who say the Bible says, but I think. And we must not think Bible plus my feelings or my private or mystical experiences, such as the Bible says, but I feel. And I've had trouble with those people in my past churches. Bible says this, I feel something else. We live in a feeling age. Thank you for listening to a long list that simply defines the word all. We affirm the Bible as the word of God. All. Why? We believe God is always right even if few or none agree with God. The Bible's always right, even if the majority in our modern USA majority opinion rules mentality is applied to the Bible. 
we also affirm the Bible's always right, even if the Bible does not sell well in modern secular culture. All. And then the text says, all scripture. The second word is scripture. A couple of words to be aware of, I guess. The word of God, broadly speaking, is everything God says and probably is much more than is in the Bible. Revelation is everything God reveals. And scripture, which derives from the Latin word to write, is the Holy Bible, Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. Now, We've gone into the theology of all scripture. Thought maybe in light of that rather detailed and depth theology, I could come up with an illustration that might be helpful. I have a flashlight here. The psalmist of 119 said, thy word is a light unto my path. And in 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, it says we have the word of God made more sure a light. Now, to put all scripture as inspired, I'll get to that soon, is to say, and I think you can see the light, I sure won't shine it in any eyes, is to say that the Bible teaching about itself is a light to our path. And I'm having trouble. I took this flashlight because you can kind of bend it. The Hebrews had foot lamps. They'd attach at the ankle, and at night, those foot lamps, which in those days were olive oil things, would lead the way in the dark so people didn't stumble over rough spots. So, all this theology in all scripture. Simply put, is the Bible is and should be for all of us a light unto our paths, a lamp unto our feet. Now, all scripture we read next is, and this translation has, God breathed. The original word is exactly that. It's a picture word. The idea is like human breath that comes out of our lungs and over our vocal cords and out as words we learn to speak when we're young. That's the picture. Now God, of course, is above and beyond us, so we have picture language here, not so much literal language. The old version says... All scripture is inspired. And God breathed is a more literal translation. It's an excellent translation. Now that means some things. Someone might say, so what does this inspiration or God-breathedness mean for me? Here are some answers. We should view the Bible as the book above all books. We should praise God for talking to us. 
We should recognize the Bible's expertise about salvation. We expect doctors to be experts in medicine, pilots experts in flying airplanes. The Bible is the expert about God. Now that means we should learn and relearn and continue to learn Bible basics. Granted, we're not saved by what we know of the Bible. We're saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ in our faith. But what we know about Bible basics is very important in the process of our salvation. And here I'm going to have to avoid getting off one of my hobby horses or at least getting too excited about it. In our times, we're dealing with a dearth of Bible knowledge. Many Christians, not all, spend one hour on Sunday in church listening to a sermon, and we're told the average household has a television on six to eight hours a week, where you learn and learn and learn what they have for you on television, too much of which is trash. That's out of balance. We in the Reformed tradition have, in my opinion, a weakness that's hurting us. Here it is. Going back to 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism was written and came into parts of Germany and the Netherlands. And the early reformers taught that Christians were ignorant, and they certainly were. They didn't even hear mass in their own language. And that ignorance had to be addressed. Thus, one of Martin Luther's things was translating the Bible, the same scripture you're hearing a sermon about today, and Luther and Calvin's views were the same as you're hearing from this pulpit. In 1563, the people were told, you ought to go to church mornings. They didn't go evenings then. It was dark and cold winters. The preacher ought to preach a sermon in a worship service whose primary purpose is to give God the glory due his name, even though there's instruction and teaching in it. And then you ought to go to adult Bible school, church school, to learn what the Bible says. And here's the catechism to teach you. That's why I asked the read Lord's Day 1 question and answer 2 this morning, too. It's so reformational. <clears throat> what must you know? My sin, my salvation, my service. See, and if we go to <clears throat> church school, catechism or Sunday school, <clears throat> excuse me, until we're teenagers, make profession of faith and no more Bible study. Adult Sunday schools are poorly attended. We're not learning, folks. And that ignorance hurts. 
Now, two generations later, 1620, Synod of Dort, the Synod recommended second worship services. But that didn't mean to deny the importance of adults learning the Bible, too. We're way too ignorant. And some churches, probably like you, know your Bible a lot better than average. It's no wonder the world has us following them along. I have a quotation for you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II days. He sensed the same problem in Germany when the church followed Hitler. It just takes a couple years for the church to follow the world if they're biblically ignorant. Bonhoeffer wrote, we need a Christian community and we must learn to know the scriptures again as the reformers and our foreparents knew them. We must not grudge the time and the work that it takes. We must know the scriptures. First and foremost, how shall we ever attain certainty and confidence if we do not stand on solid biblical ground? Very applicable in 2020 today, folks. All scripture, then, is God-breathed. One more thing and I'll move on. I think we're right to give to the Bible some of the characteristics we do. The Bible is infallible. It has authority. It's perspicuous or clear about the basics of salvation. And it's sufficient unto salvation. I think the Bible also is rightly called inerrant, that was argued a lot a generation ago. If by inerrancy you mean the Bible as given to its original culture, yes, then it is inerrant. Now, let's go on with the text here. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Did you get that word useful there today? That means the Bible is practical. Practical in order to help us, not only for an hour in church on Sunday, but for the 167 hours of our whole week. I have a second illustration, and it comes right from John Calvin, who tried to explain Scripture by saying Scripture is like spectacles. If we put on these spectacles, I see you darkly and dimly. Calvin says, by nature we see darkly and dimly. But with the scripture, we see light and bright, truth and all we need. John Calvin's own illustration. The Bible is inspired and also practical. We must not think that the Bible is of historical interest only, or for Sundays only, or sure is a nice book on my bookshelf as long as I dust it off from time to time. We must not give lip service only to the Bible and not life service. The Bible is more practical than these 
bookstore sections and bookstores with the how-to books, more practical than the how-to stuff online in the media. Enough said. Back to the text again. All scripture is useful or practical, applicable for, and it says four things, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching is facts or truths. Rebuking is saying no and don't to some so-called truths and behaviors. Correcting is saying yes and do to godly behaviors and teaching. Training in righteousness is godly good habits. If some of you like rhyming words, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, teaching proves you're Christians. You want to learn what God teaches you. Teaching proves. Rebuking reproves. Correcting improves. And training in righteousness is what God approves. The Apostle Paul taught three years in Ephesus to ordinary Christian believers, including, I trust, adults learning the Word of God. Calvin preached much. He was convinced Scripture, and get this, address minds to change hearts. And I think Calvin had that right. We must not be biblically and spiritually ignorant. Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Do you know what the last written words we have from the great apostle Peter are? 2 Peter 3, 16, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Have you ever heard the words hocus pocus? I'll tell you where they came from in case you haven't. Middle Ages, the Mass was said in Latin. The people knew that when the priest came to the part where he said, hoc es, which is Latin for this is, that they called the hocus pocus, that church was nearly done. <laughs> That's a true little anecdote there. The Bible should not be hocus pocus to us. We should hear it, and we should know it, and we should heed it. And notice again, we must also hear the reproofs of the Bible. That's very, very important. To try to come up with one other illustration of what these four words mean, 
Most of you use GPS things nowadays in your cars, sometimes in the newer cars, right in it. The GPS guides you wherever you program it to guide you. I once said to my wife, that sure is a smart lady inside that GPS. <laughs> God is smarter, okay? And to illustrate, our text is saying that the Bible is also like a GPS. It's light, it's glasses, if you want it simple. I hope the children can remember these things. It's glasses, it's like a GPS. And then last, the other verse in our text, which reads this way, it's verse 17. So that the man of God, meaning men, women, adults, children, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This verse gets at another of the big teachings of the reformers, good works. In Germany, near where Luther lived in Wittenberg, we had this Tetzel come and advertise indulgences or forgiveness for the sins of your ancestors in purgatory. We have a minute yet. I want you to listen to the way he advertised and then we'll explain. He said, listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We're in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Don't you wish to open your ears, hear the, your father saying to a son and mother to a daughter, we bore you, nourished you, brought you up left you our fortunes, and you're so cruel and hard that now you're not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames and purgatory? Will you delay our promised glory? Will you not for a quarter or a florin receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul from purgatory into the fatherland? Of paradise? I could go on and on. I'm quoting from Roland Baton, authority on Luther in his book, Here I Stand. Here's what's going on with a Tetzel. The church in the Middle Ages said that Christ did an atoning work on the cross, a saving work for his people. But that saving work lacked at least a little bit, they'd never say how much, wasn't quite enough. And Christ's saving work on the cross had to have, along with it, the good works of Christians so that your good works became a partial cause of your salvation. That was the theology. I think many of you know it, but relevant to the text, I'm going to repeat it. And then, of these good works that had to be done, well, Mother Mary had terrific works, and the saints had more than they needed to help out Christ. So there was a place where the extra good works 
of the saints were deposited. They even had a Latin name for the place. And next, the church had the right to give these works out in the form of indulgences. That's the big word there, indulgences. And if you would pay for an indulgence, that indulgence counted to get your ancestors out of purgatory and into heaven. And when the Reformation popes wanted to build fancy buildings in Rome, they sent out people like Tetzel to sell indulgences. And that's the quotation that you heard. Tetzel was a radical, but he was a salesman. And Martin Luther and the reformers came along and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Read your Bibles. That whole business of indulgences and purgatory, you don't find it in your Bibles. Listen to your Bible. And you'll see a text like 2 Timothy 3, 16. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, we don't cause our salvation by our good works, but the Bible tells us of our salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then, when you're saved, God doesn't take you to heaven right away, at least not ordinarily. He gives you the privilege of life. But you don't have to, with fear and trembling, think I got to do good works to help out Christ and get to heaven. You don't have to pay money to buy your relatives out of purgatory. You do good works because you're saved. Righteousness is, first of all, a declaration by God. That's not the truth we're going into today, but it was a great Reformation truth. And those who have the gift of righteousness, wish to live righteous lives. The Reformation, folks. And I'm going to conclude today by quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is as good an explanation of 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, as there is in Lord's Day 33. What is involved in genuine repentance and conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? It's to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. What is the coming to life of the new self? It's and get this, a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight, not a chore, not a helper to Christ, a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. And what do we do that is good? Only that which arises out of true faith conforms to God's law and is done for his glory and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human 
tradition. The one sentence bottom line, dear people of God, is may your Reformation Day 2020 cause you to rejoice in the God of all faith, of all grace, and your faith, and the privilege of living for him by your good works, not to help save yourself, but because God saved you. Let's pray. God in heaven, we rejoice today at these moments when we could focus on the great truths Luther and Calvin stood for. And may the words of the scripture and my mouth and the meditations of our hearts make a good Reformation Day 2020 for us this coming Saturday. Amen.